Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, hosted here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our very appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Harbinger is a community of progressive, listener-supported podcasts and videos transmitting from the world to come. And that is exactly what we'll be talking about today, the world to come. My name is Stephen Hostetter. Dave and Lauren both have the week off this week, as we'll be joined very shortly by Rob Shorter, the Communities and Art Lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab, and we'll be carrying forward our conversation from last week about alternative ways to structure our economy and to make it work for as many people as possible. But before we get into that, I just want to briefly touch on one of the bigger news stories to come out this month, which is the COP15 agreement that aims to halt biodiversity loss by 2030. And that is an audacious goal, especially for an issue that has been in the public eye for decades. I mean, Rachel Carson's seminal work, Silent Spring, came out 60 years ago, and it's pretty clear that our wilderness spaces have only got quieter since. And to give a bit of an overview of just exactly how bad our biodiversity loss is, insect numbers have been hit especially hard with 40% of species in decline and a full third of them being endangered. But the issue is widespread enough to have scientists warning that we are on the verge of starting Earth's sixth major extinction-level event, on the scale that we have not seen since the dinosaurs. And so COP15 was hoping to be a turning point. And to that point, they did reach an agreement, and the, it's, a gold, it, it's a bold goal. The deal, if followed through on, would protect 30% of the planet for nature by 2030 and restore 30% of the planet's degraded ecosystems and include the reformation of $500 billion of environmentally damaging subsidies. And so that is not anything to sniff at. And part of the way they're going to get at this is sort of through four main goals. The first is to maintain and enhance and restore ecosystems, including the halting species extinction and maintaining genetic diversity. The second is the quote-unquote sustainable use of biodiversity, which essentially ensuring that species and habitats can provide the services they provide for humanity, such as food and clean drinking water, which, you know, for those of us who might think that these animals have a reason to live by themselves without needing to be serving humanity might, you know, tug us the wrong way, and yet there it is. The third is, to, is ensuring that the benefits of resources from nature, like medicines that come from plants, are f shared fairly and equally, and that indigenous peoples' rights are protected. And the fourth is that paying for putting resources into biodiversity and by ensuring that the money and, cons and conservation efforts get to where they are needed. And I will say that this one, as we'll find out in a couple of minutes, was a place where a real sticking point occurred as they were coming to the end of the text. And so, if the 30 by 30 framework and the language of quote-unquote sustainable use might make you a bit skeptical about how much of this agreement could be PR, 
I would say you have every right to at least be cautious. That's because governments have never met a target they have set for themselves on nature. And this particular agreement was rammed through well past three in the morning, despite objections from the Dem De Democratic Republic of Congo, Cameroon, and Uganda, who felt that there was not enough support for African nations included in the agreement that historically sees most of the conservation funding going to China, Brazil, Indonesia, India, and Mexico. And that said, the DRC, Brazil, and Indonesia were all pushing for, additional for an additional fund to be set up to support these conservation targets, but ultimately that was not included. And finally, for those who follow the climate cops, you will probably be familiar with the disappointment in terms of language. In case you are wondering what the quote, net zero of biodiversity is, it's nature positive, which commentators believe will be used to allow for the ongoing consumption of pesticides, which are the, which are the cause of a significant amount of the biodiversity loss we see today. And so ultimately, we're left a bit like where we were after the Paris Accord, a bold vision that, if enacted, could prove to be a turning point but also a vision that is hampered by wealthy nations dragging their feet in terms of putting money where their mouth is and watered-down language that provides loopholes for the problem to continue to persist. And so, time will tell just how historic this agreement will prove to be. But one thing is for sure. If we as a species are going to survive another 60 years, we are going to need to bring some noise back to our springs and wilderness immediately. And so after the break, I'll be chatting with Rob Shorter of the Donut Economics Lab about tackling these underlying issues causing the, this crisis at their roots. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including with the Harbinger Media Network, a great network of, of progressive media across the country as well. I am here with a great interview with Rob Shorter the Communities and Art Lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So we have been talking on the show a fair amount over the past couple of months about alternative futures, about ways where we could reconstruct society in a positive vision. You know, I think those of us who are in the environmental field spend a lot of the time saying how things shouldn't exist, very rightly so. A lot of places are trying to make the world worse right now, and so that's a necessary action. But, you know, we, it's hard, I think, to get progress without also coming up with alternative futures. And 
we've talked about degrowth movement previously, and the donut economics is very similar, not similar to degrowth exactly, but similar in that it is a positive vision for how we could restructure our society towards these sort of social goals. And so I really am excited to talk to you about that and dive into it. But beforehand, I'd love to get a better sense of you personally. And so by way of introduction, can you tell us how you got interested and involved in, in alternative economic structures, and then maybe more specifically, the donut economics chinlap? Yeah, of course. Yeah, great. So first of all, I didn't really intend to to end up in this 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 space, if you like. I was working for a large organization in the UK called the Cooperative Group as a business for good. It was actually the organization that sort of about 180 years ago came up with the original cooperative principles. And I thought, well, a great place to sort of learn the the tools of business and learn how business can be, you know, a societal benefit. And in that process, I ended up working in the strategy team looking at the future of what the co-op could be in the 21st century. You know, nothing was left sort of off the table. We could look at all different sectors and all different kind of things, trends that were, were sort of coming our way in the UK. And, but the more I looked into these, these macro trends of society and the, the more sort of questions we were asking, the more I realized this wasn't a, a single organization that was going to be able to, to look into these problems. I always also recognized it was a question we were, we were hugely beholden to the markets we were already operating in. The cooperative group had 3,000 grocery stores, for example, in a big retail outlet. And it was really beholden to the sort of market trends and also the economic paradigm of growth, grow, grow, grow. And so it was a sort of a, a paradigm that was, I was recognizing was filtering down into all our decisions throughout the businesses. And I kind of, the more I looked into alternative, it was the first time I was really looking into alternative economic thinking. And the more I looked, the more irresistible the alternatives were and ended up sort of taking time out a year out to, to study the, the, the wider landscape of, of alternatives that were the cropping up around the world. And I did that at Schumacher College in Devon in the UK, a wonderful ecological college, which drew in an international audience as sort of a lovely melting pot of possibility. And from there, I, I think it was just a case of, you know, how do I you know, find my place in this, this world of alternatives, really, which then sparked my redirection towards working with Donut Economics Action Lab. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's a somewhat common approach mm. into this. You know, you start working in our current <laughs> yeah. systems and you realize at some point you get stuck, right? Yeah, And you see this a lot with people in their career trajectories of, yeah, they find themselves either trying to, you know, work in the system to change it slightly or realize that actually, no, everything I really want to do takes, requires one further step back. Mm. And, and I think this, this kind of conversation where you're really just sort of bring to question the sort of fundamentals of our economic mm. systems is really the biggest, one of the biggest steps back you can take, right? Mm. You're like, okay, no, no, I got to <laughs> start here because then everything falls through, right? And it's obviously a huge lift and a, and a bunch of work, but without that, you know, Without people thinking about this and talking about it, you're never going to create an alternative future because no one can imagine it. You know, there's been these articles written recently about how all of the futurists and all of the sci-fi writers basically only imagine a dystopia. No one is really writing too many, hey, we did it, or hey, this is actually a positive vision. More often more than not, we're getting these dystopias. And so let's do our own step back. And maybe you can tell us about what what is the donut and what is donut economics? Oh, you've raised so many interesting topics there. I'm scribbling down all these potential routes we can go with this conversation. <laughs> but let's let go with the donut. So donut is a, an alternative 
goal for the economy that is is an alternative to GDP, gross domestic product. And uh, currently our economies have this uh, sort of assumption that the goal is endless GDP growth and that that is possible on a finite planet. And so the donut actually poses an, a, a, a different goal, which says, hey, we have a planet which has limits. And so we are bumping up against those limits and it's ever more evident that those limits exist. So the limits of the growth, you know, has a, has a long history that I won't go into detail of, partly because my memory is so poor, I can't quote the exact dates of publication, things like that. But sort of the uh, Club of Rome sort of publishing the limits to growth back in whatever year it was, decades ago. The donut is a visual that says, hey, the limit is this outer circle, the ecological ceiling of the planet. And Earth system scientists in 2009 were able to define the boundaries across nine different dimensions, if you like, ranging from carbon dioxide in the air with climate change through to chemical pollution of um, you know, plastics in the, in, the, in the oceans, and but also the way we, we relate to, to the land we use. We convert it for, for our cities, for our farming, all those things. And so there are actually nine of these dimensions which form the outer boundary of the donut. Now, why the donut? Because it also has an inner foundation. And so you get two concentric rings, which looks like a, a donut with a hole in the middle. And the inner ring is the foundations of life, the essentials for humanity to, to live a good life. And, and so we want to, to meet these essentials within the means of the living planet. We want to be in the space between. So what are the, what are the essentials of life? And it's a, it's a subjective question. Where, where the scientists are able to define the outer boundary with the, the leading system science thinking, the inner boundary is always going to be a, a question of well, what, what is what is the essential of a good life? And so what we do with donut economics is for the, the global goal of the donut, we, we defer to the, the, the sort of the consensus amongst all of the nation's governments. So 193 nation's governments agreed to the UN Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. And so they cover sort of clean water, healthy food, good gender equality, political voice, and a good housing. And all these, all these things, we've actually defined 12 dimensions of the, the, the social foundation. And so, yeah, these, these, these two then rings of the donuts, the outer boundary, the inner foundation, these are, these give the shape of, of the donut a, a nice sort of playful name for a very important and powerful idea. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a good point of the way the name, I think, impacts how people think about it. When you, and, and when you see it, you're realizing that the goal is to stay sort of on the donut. Mm. In that, you know, you're trying to ensure that you are using resources or resources are used well enough that people are not experiencing these social harms, mm. but that we are not, say, overshooting Earth's limits, which is a topic people might have heard of, you know, from Earth Overshoot Day and things like that in any of these sort of outer boundaries so as to not destroy the system that ultimately make the whole thing possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, 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 you've beautifully articulated to that. So we, we don't want to be leaving people falling short in the essentials of life in the hole in the middle. We don't want to be overshooting the, the limits of the planet out on the, on the outside. And unfortunately, we, we, we were able to, to quantify that we are actually doing both those things and that the economies we have today have got us into a position where, you know, we, we are not meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. And we need to, well, it's like our, our choice is, um, as the generation to first see this picture of the, the donut in its, in its array of overshoot and shortfall, do, do we continue with the, you know, the economic thinking that's got us in this mess? Or do we take this opportunity to, to reimagine that? And then that filters out into public policy, it filters out into business design. And, and so those are all the kind of the, the ways in which we then begin to think about donut economics in action. And so, yeah, that's why we started as the Donut Economics Action Lab to, to support the people who've picked this, this up and said, what does it mean here, here, here? 
Yeah, because that's obviously sort of, I feel like the natural next question, right? You can sort of see this and understand exactly as you've stated that we are massively overshooting some of these for sure. You know, like we've seen biodiversity loss, totally unprecedented as if we're entering a, a new level of extinction. We have plastics in our bloodstream at this point. And yet people aren't fed. And, you know, and we know the fact that that's the people aren't fed is not because they couldn't be fed. You know, the, the, the proof has gone out time, time again, that there hasn't been a real famine in decades. It's exclusively an economic famine. There's no question we don't have enough food on this planet. It is just where the food is. And that is true, I think, of a lot of these social determinants, right? Like, there's no question we couldn't be allocating the resources we have in a way that helps the people who are, you know, experience that shortfall. And I'll leave this on the side for us to maybe get to later. The ways of which we are overshooting also seemingly end up impacting the people who are experiencing the shortfall even more so, right? Like mm. the the ways that climate change are going to harm, say, the unhoused even more so, or the or the hungry even more so is a addition to this donut. It's that if you are in the middle and experiencing those losses, you are much, much more susceptible to the harms that will be created by the outer. And those of us who are sort of comfortably living at least in that donut from the resources perspective will be protected in some ways by our resources. And of mm. course, not to say that we won't all experience it in, in many ways, but there is that sort of dichotomy. But let's just take this sort of, you know, where you are heading, which is we have this, Vision, And I, I would encourage people that if you don't entirely understand what is being said right now, just Google donut economics and look at the donut because it is a visual tool that I think is very helpful to frame out these things. So, you know, pause the podcast or just when you get home, just Google it, just see the donut because it will be helpful, I think, to your brain. But people are now experiencing this and have come to sort of same conclusion you have, which I think is a pretty reasonable one, which is we got to do something different. How do we, people they start taking this into action? Oh, many ways. And actually, one of our challenges is to, to give a kind of a, not a sense of overwhelm because there are, there are so many things that you, you can do from interventions in your own life and the behaviors and choices you make on an everyday basis, all the way through to you know, taking systemic action and working with others to kind of to do the, the bigger shifts. There's a lovely sentiment that I heard from the, the folks at Cooperation Jackson, which is one might be individually impossible becomes collectively feasible. And so a lot of this work is around connection, connecting with other people who have a belief that alternatives are possible. And there's a, you know, the thread of imagination has been through this conversation already. And this is actually critical to it all. It's, it's recognizing that we have such a wealth of possibility if we can only imagine it. And, and so, yeah, so the, the kind of the first steps I'd say is see what's out there, see what's going on. So, so the donut, well, the deal website is a place of connection. So there are over 10,000 members. So you don't have to be a member to have a look at the stuff that's going on. But these are, these are stories of action from communities to education, to business, to local governments. And these are people who are waiting for others to, to say, you know, have permission to get going. And then those stories inspiring others. So if you're in fact, you know, you could be working or volunteering or acting or, you know, there's so many economic roles that we, um, that we take up and move seamlessly between day by day, you know, whether you're, you know, a parent, partner, a carer, a child in the household or in the commons, you're a volunteer or, or, or sort of a, you know, a steward, or if you're in the market, you know, you're, you move between buyer and consumer, producer in many different ways. And so in all of these different ways, you have 
economic agency. So what we try and do what we do in economics and say, okay, what are the many economic roles you have? What are the ways in which you can take action within all of those? In, in communities, everyone, I hope, is a part of some community or another. So who are the people on your street? You know, so what, what are the conversations happening there? You know, things, people, are, people are feeling impacts of either kind of the global trends or lo- more localized trends. So what are the conversations? What are people's mind there? What are the, what are the things that are worrying them? And concerning them, but what are the things they deeply care about? You know, like, and where's the source of kind of almost like, where's the source of positive energy for change as well? And so you've, you've rightly pointed out, you know, the donor is something that can actually mobilize a positive force as opposed to just being against something. So, so I think everything really starts with a, with a conversation and connection. So, yeah. So connecting with people, as I mentioned on your street and in your neighborhood, what are the, yeah, what are the roles when you're, when you're working, you know, what are the kind of the, the structures that you're within? So I came from working within an organization stepped out, but actually there are so many people coming to this work from within organizations saying, Hey, we can, we can really kickstart some change by, by getting the people who are interested within an organization together and also then connecting across a sector. So there's quite a lot of different sectors looking at this. I mean, there's been a recent report on the, the fashion sector and how you know, they can use the ideas of donor economics for transformation too. So there's, there's so many ways in. We are, how many years? We're just over two years since we published the website. So everything is really new still. So we haven't, we're, we're, we're you know, our, our main challenge is actually making as clear a signposting to all the ways that a action is possible. But there's, yeah, there's something, something for everyone, really. Right. And I think that one of the, ways I think people can begin to understand how they get involved is partially from understanding you know, sort of the ultimate goal. And so there's a part of your website that I find actually very helpful, which is sort of how to think of a 21st century economic, econ- economist. Yeah. And, and the first point is change the goal. And I yeah. think that really, that changing the goal connects, its, connects donor economics with, again, with the degrowth movement to some, some extent and with other movements, almost any movement for significant change, I think, starts with that point, that we have to change the goal of our economic system. And you've talked about it a little bit, but I wonder if you can dive in a little bit more about, you know, what removing the expectations of GDP means for our systems and how we can better reorient ourselves towards a, you know, towards this goal of harmonious systems. Yeah. 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 So, so donor economics is, the donor is the, the, the goal of donor economics, but it comes with these seven ways to think, which is like a bit of a guide to seven ways to think like a 21st century economist. And the chapters of the book, Donor Economics, which was released five years ago, go through each of these one by one. And yeah, change the goal is the, the first chapter. Interestingly, the last chapter is be agnostic about growth. So the goal of the economy at the moment is growth. And so we say, okay, we'll be agnostic about growth because we're not saying don't grow. We're saying what happens when you put go- growth front and center is that you end up with policies where, and business models where the health of communities and the living planet are collateral. And so actually say, let's put the health of communities and the living planet front and center as the goal. And then whether or not we grow, in a, like if we have an economy that grows GDP, fine. But actually the goal is not that growth. And so that's the, the really important distinction. So... Yeah, when we have the goal, goal of thriving, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a goal that is in tune with the living systems of the, the, the planet. Like, if you think about growth as like the human body, when someone says to you, a doctor might say, you've got a growth, you know, the story is, is very different. You know, we understand balance intuitively. And, and so, you know, when we, we, we self-regulate all the time, 
you know, with how much we eat or don't, how much we, you know, warm our bodies or not, or cool our bodies. And, you know, there's balance in, in, in all natural systems. And so why would we have an economy that actually is just predicated on an endless expansion, you know, endless expansion of financial markets, endless expansion of our, you know, our reach into ecosystems, you know, um, endless, endless sort of consumption and, and so we, 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 we flip that and say, well, what does thriving in balance look like? And it's a really intuitive, it's, it's something that people are intimidated by the ideas of economics. The discipline has been almost intentionally made impenetrable and intimidating, but actually people, we haven't found yet one person who's scared of donuts. Yay. So people are kind of lean into, oh, what's donut economics? And then we say, well, the first thing of donut economics is what does it mean to you to thrive? And they're like, brilliant. Okay. I can, I can bring my, any, anyone can bring their aspirations or their experience to that question. And so when you then have a collective question, it's like, what does it mean for all of us to thrive? What does it mean for the communities upon which we depend around the world to thrive <laughs> whilst we're thriving? It opens up just a completely, you know, that's the goal. And it ends up looking like the donut. Yeah. I love that you point out how intuitive it becomes once you think about it in any other context. You know, the ways that we totally understand in a natural system and again, even ourselves, you know, if humans never stopped growing, eventually we would, our internal systems would fail. Like that's a, that would be a horrendous problem for humanity if we just consistently grew until we got so big that our heart and the internal systems would no longer be able to pump blood to our, our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Like that would be a really problem. And I think we understand that in a, in a way, again, in biological systems, we've managed to divorce ourselves so specifically between like one of your other, these pieces of economic, one of these other ways to be thinking like a 21st century economist is to move from the sort of individualistic, rational economic man to this idea of social communities. And so I want to get into that and I want to get into art. Uh, <laughs> once we come back from the music break, so we're going to go to music break and then we'll be, we will be back with Rob Shorter, the communities and art lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. We'll be right back. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our patreon page thank you very much and i'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the harbinger media network featuring great shows such as tech won't save us press progress's sources and the Forgotten Corner podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and if you're just tuning in, I am joined by Rob Shorter, the Communities and Art Lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. And 
For this section, we're going to talk about those two first words, communities and art. So let's start with communities, because I think that one, it may be a little more obvious for folks whenever you're talking about shifting systems and, and moving towards a better world, community comes up. To me, and this is definitely my bias showing a little bit, there is maybe no greater harm done by our economic systems than the creation of this idea of this individualistic, totally outside of community human being that exists in the economic systems. I think that alone has fostered so much of the harm we see today, including, you know, these massive amounts of loneliness that you hear people talk about and you hear all this question about how do we how are we doing so disconnected etc 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 it's like well we built systems designed to allow and encourage that so that they only think of themselves economic actors and not members of community because members of community don't buy as much stuff just basically straight up that's a problem for our capital system is that if you're in a community you can borrow someone's sugar and they want you to buy that sugar again and again and again so in your work, and as you work towards, you know, trying to bring together this sort of alternative future, how do you see the role of communities and, and what is your role within it? Brilliant. Yeah, so I'm, I'm so thrilled that communities are at the heart of donor economics work. So we have six different themes that we, that we work across. So I've mentioned a few already with, with business, and we work with city governments, city and regional governments, and also schools and education, and academia, and also kind of national level politics as well. But when we think about communities, I mean, it's actually quite a, in a very um, hard to pin down term. I think everyone would have their own relationship with the word and also the relationship with the, whatever that mo word might mean for them in their life. One question I love is that when communities, when a facilitator of community, a community organizer might hold a workshop and say, well, what does this community, you know, what's the definition of this community to you? And then so, some people might say, it's like, oh, it's, it's like everyone who can hear that bell ring. And it's like they're just like blowing open like a, a sense of what like the boundaries of a community might. So yeah, communities not within within deal. The communities refers to sort of I think two distinct types of community: those located in place, situated in the neighborhood scale, so very relational on a kind of you know you, you rub up against people day in day out, you know people on your street, people in, in your neighborhood. Those people who are sort of organizing in their in their in their volunteer time or, or working around a, uh, a community organization that's sort of holding these ideas. Or the other scale is kind of those who are working at a wider scale of, of, of a city or region or nation who are connecting with each other, saying we can form like a network of practice and we, we form like this community of people who are who have come to these ideas from their various different places across public, private sector and beyond. So they are realizing together we can begin to shift the deeper dynamics that are needed so we can start lobbying for change, pushing. On, on various different yeah, pathways to, to sort of raise awareness and, and get people interested. So they're sort of operating on, on a kind of a wider scale. So those are kind of the, the, the network. So the communities of, of place, communities of, of practice, the kind of two ways that, that at least I'm thinking about it at the moment within deal. But the, um, I love just defaulting back to nature. How does nature do things? How does nature design? Like, so if we think about like the history of natural design or in the history of the planet, 3.5 billion years of R&D that has pretty much settled on, you know, like community being foundational and like the leading science now saying that, well, competition is, is temporary and situational. And actually that's what our competition is and rational economic man, which you mentioned, is this model of humanity where we put competition at the heart and self-interest. 
and ever calculating and and actually above nature. Whereas actually, com- yeah, competition we're, we're learning in nature is only temp- temporary and situational. Whereas actually, mutualism is foundational to every single natural relationship and in the natural world. And so, community is central to to what it means to thrive. And there's other evidence that shows that one of the greatest determinants of health is social connection. And so, you know, I won't go, I'm no, no sort of expert in, in all of the different science behind that, but I know from my qualitative experience and from everyone else's that that, that is absolutely well, my, my lived experience <laughs> too. And so, yeah, designing, you know, connection and community is, is absolutely the heart of, of, of the question of what it means to thrive. And I think it brings a kind of a, a responsibility to one another and accountability to one another, which then extends to every single scale of community. Like the original term economics is grounded in the words household management, where household is oikos and management is, or, or sort of the norms of management is, is nomos, oikos nomos economy. And actually the, the household that, we, we, that we're managing now isn't, 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 isn't the sort of the, the, the household or what then became the sort of city management or scaling out to the regional or national management. We're, we're now managing our global household, the planetary home, that we're all in community with each other. We're, we're so deeply connected, you know, the pandemic showed us. We're so intimately complex, deep interconnections with each other that we, you know, we have to have accountability to all of the communities that, that, we're, that we're with on a daily basis, but that we're also with in connection with through all of these, you know, unknowably complex connections that exist around the world. So yeah, community is, is, is central to everything. Right, for sure. And I think that's, so interesting in part because current economics that are based around, you know, growth and, you know, the capitalist structure that we currently have rely on externalities, right? They rely on things outside of the system. They rely on exploiting those things outside the system, you know, whether it is unpaid labor or people who are more valuable to the company than they are getting paid for or that you can pollute into our atmosphere without people charging you for that. Like, that's how profit is made. Profit is made by capitalizing on something that is not being monetized. And people can argue that there's ways that that helps because, you know, I am willing to sell my labor for the amount of money that I make, and that is still better than my other opportunity, sure. But, you know, the earth doesn't get that option. The people who are... Who are, who are not willing to sell their labor, who cannot sell their labor for a price that keeps them alive, do not love this. These are all of these problems that exist right now, and they're caused by this fact. And community, what I love about it a little bit is that it cannot have an externality. There is no one, like you can push people out of a community, but if they are still in your presence, they are still there. And you know, and if every time and you can try to pretend you are not in community with people in your near presence or outside of it, but this is the reality. This is the world we live in. We live in a world where if someone's in front of you and, you know, you live in their household, for example, you can't just pretend they're not there mm-hmm. and you can't just sort of exploit their, that existence of them not being there because at some point the limits of those things will come back. And, you know, if you expand the idea of definition of community to our our, our world that we live in, the ecosystems that we're a part of, you can see how that sort of expands the thinking that, okay, I don't get to decide the communities I'm a part of entirely. Obviously, you can, believe you're, you can leave a toxic situation, but ultimately, we're still in a global community. And so you have to face these problems. You can't mm. just, you know, wait, finger wave and say, well, you're 
not part of my economic system. Therefore, you don't matter because that doesn't work. And you know, when you talk to people who are trying to save capitalism and trying to save a current system, the main argument they make is, well, what we're doing is we're just not pricing enough things. Like, let's just solve this problem by saying, mm. oh, no, we should have to pay for everything else. We should just start charging people for these things and bring all of this once again into an economic system instead of really embracing the fact that we actually need to interact like we are in a community, like we don't have the options to just ignore something. We must try to make everyone thrive because a community does not work if you know, if, if a part of the community is suffering, that whole community is suffering mm. in a way that is not true about economic systems. Like you mm. can just impose suffering in our economic systems as they currently stand and they won't come back in a way that like, if you, you I'm, I'm sure anyone here can imagine a community they've been part of, which has a few people who are hurting right now. And it, you understand that that is a weight borne by the whole community versus how we sort of go on the daily basis now and say like, well, they're not in my immediate economic connection, so they, I don't have to pay for them. That we build this on top of capitalism, like the government, to help those people, because we still sort of understand a little bit, but then they doesn't do a great job, and then we try to push it further in front of our mind's eye, and yet, you know, you walk down the street and experience someone who's unhoused, and they are trying to survive just like you are, and they're part of your community, because they're right there in front of you, and yet our economic system is failing them. And I think that that reality and that need to take care of your whole community is something so important, so driving to create these opportunities for really thinking about change and change that really matters. Mm. But yeah. to, to move on to, to art, because <laughs> I think this is sort of like, I love, I like about starting communities because I think one big question is how do you build community? And I think one of the great ways you can build community is art. And so how do you see the role of art in the work that you're doing and the work of bringing apart a, a thriving future? I think art offers a, it's, it's like visions of the future. The artists have the, you know, like I read a beautiful, <laughs> I heard a beautiful statement the other day. that's like worms are to soil what artists are to place. And artists have an ability to kind of conjure the imagination of the possible. But, you know, there are the artists who'd say everyone. You know, everyone is an artist. Everyone has that, you know, ability to imagine and to envision a, 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 an alternative future that we want to live into. And art, I, I see as not only a way of kind of seeing that, but also playing in it and like expressing it and actually experiencing what that could be that doesn't privilege the, the people who think in ways that our educational systems or our institutions are designed, privileging those who might be able to articulate themselves in a given way or receive information in a given way. No, I think art explodes that open and says that there are so many ways, so many ways to experience these, to, to all the things that we value most. And so how do we bring that into our ways of relating when exploring economic alternatives? And, and so with, with donor economics, we recognize we're inviting people to think differently. We're recognizing that's a huge challenge for many. Some people are already jump, you know, biting, you know, chomping at a bit, you know, already dreaming alternatives and then and trying to to make those look irresistible to others. But for those who who are new to thinking about the alternatives, what are the the methods that can like be artistic methods that can open up those ways of seeing, ways of experiencing, ways of being that yeah, begin just to exercise those muscles that have potentially been unexercised in, in quite a long time. And 
and it really links closer to the imagination. And so if we're trying to help people think differently, we, we recognize that the methods that are artistic and playful and inviting and creative that, that sort of cultivate connection with each other, with the living world, with ourselves and what we deeply care about, you know, these are the, the tools that we need at our disposal, like in the hands of everyone to feel equipped to pick up and take into all the spaces that you are with your peers to say, you're welcome to be part of this too. And with, you know, everyone's perspective is needed to, to recreate, to reimagine their economic possibilities. So art is, is, is inviting. It is not, it is not binary. It is, it is just hugely recognizing of, of potential and possibility. Well, I guess recognizing it's sort of opening of potential and possibility. So it is, um, you know, art is a process. It's that there's just a, like, I would say the, the, the language of donor economics is, is art really. It's we, yes, we talk to governments. Yes. We talk to business, but actually how do we bring in permission and art is permission too. So it's like, there's no right and wrong. And so there's no right and wrong kind of answers the work we're doing here as well. There's harm and, and, and health, but not right and wrong. So yeah, art is, yeah, I'll stop there. And what, what do you oh, think? Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. I love that. I love the, the, the permission I think is so key, mm. both in art and in community building. I, I could go on and on and on about the ways <laughs> that I think that creating space and permission for people to bring themselves into spaces is the only way to really welcome them into those spaces, right? Like you can't build community by a top-down approach. I can't just say you're a community now. That's doesn't that's how it works. You have to give the people who are part of it the ability to engage with it. And I think that's in art, yes, the one of the greatest engagement tools that we've got to offer. I'd be curious if you have any cool examples of art that you've seen that inspires you, that sort of brings to get brings you some of that joy that you think that donor economics could could bring to the world. So if you were to think about the different you know, expressions of art, you know, we could we could start with the, what the first thing you'd think about would maybe be painting. And so some people have used paintings in workshops, invited people to to actually physically paint on the donut what they how they the health of their community. And so bit by bit over the course of the workshop, this big collar visual on the on the wall of the the workshop expands. Some people take their own individual creativity and and create either comics or you know, graphic novels or we have a, this activity called donut dreams where we invite people of all ages but predominantly children to paint their a vision of the donut in the center of the the ring of the donut and then these all connect together actually to create a, like a corkscrew spiral a spiral of dreams we've got people who are bringing craft to it in all kinds of ways crocheting and knitting and people bring, we've actually got people dancing as well. So in both Cornwall and in Colombia, we've had people recognize in, in Cornwall, they were looking at our interconnections, our dynamic interconnections through the donut. And in Colombia, they're saying, what does it mean to dance within constraints, within the limits? And what does that do for the way we express ourselves? So yeah, it's, there's so many, so many ways to, of, 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 of bringing art to, to explore donut economics. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense because a thing about this that I'm struck by a little bit is that, like, I think people can obviously get intimidated by a the word economics and b that even the donut itself, if it takes a bit of time to sort of get ahead to it. But what you've come back to in this interview a bunch is just this question of what does it look like to thrive, and that ultimately feels like the question in the in the overture goal that I think creates a much 
more relaxing and artful set of questions, right? Like what's people don't really associate art with economics, but this question of the good life is the question that art has, you know, dominated really. There's almost no other form to even begin asking the question of what a good life looks like and feels like and what does thriving look like and feel like. And so it's interesting to have this sort of, you know, obviously technical background, which you need to be able to be like, no, this is what we mean by this, or else you're just sort of asking the same question, you know, that Plato asked 3,000 years ago. But at the same time, you are come back to that question for, for the entry point in, which is, no, no, what do you actually want in life? Do you want to be around people or not? Do you, do you want to be able to have a, an environment that, that is healthy and living or not? Do you want to have a society that has more health than harm, as you said? Or not, and these end ultimately the questions that I think people end up engaging with when they begin to sort of go past the the diagram. So we are coming up to the to the end of the show, though, and so I, I do want to give a couple opportunities for you to tell people how they can learn more and get involved and that kind of thing. So let's start there. How can folks first of off just hear more about the work you're doing and get connected to the to the whole operation? So you can visit donuteconomics.org. And I think either spelling of donut will get you to the URL, but we've spelt it the, the UK way, which is O-U-G-H. And in that website, you can then discover the community of, of connecting with members in your place, or there are actually networks springing up around the world. So you could either explore those networks or create your own. You can visit the, the different pages. So for each of the themes that I've mentioned, including communities and art, we have our, our own theme page. And so you can see the introduction and meet a few people working in that area and see some of the tools that you can immediately use. So you can explore those. If you're working in education, check that page out too, or business or um, policy. So there's a, there's a space for, for all these different areas. And yeah, read the, the stories from, from people around the world in different contexts. And so there's a, there's a lot on offer. So dip in or dive in, whichever feels right for the amount of time you've got. Amazing. And so I want to give you a last word. It's our tradition on the show to give our guests sort of the last word to sort of say either something you feel like you want to hammer home from our conversation or a, a new thought that you want to leave people with. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been Rob Shorter, the Communities and Art Lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, any last word to our listeners? Great question. Mm. I would say my last word is that lean into the difference. Lean into if you are having a conversation with your neighbor, and they've got that difference in perspective, there's, there's gold on the other side of that difference. And it's, it's, all of this work is a collective effort. And in community, it's about how we coexist with difference and through the richness of that, the challenge of that. So that, yeah, that just felt like the thing that I wanted to, to share now. So conversation and you know, with, with everyone, embracing everyone through that difference. <laughs>